Matt Burgess is Senior Economist at the New Zealand Initiative and is quickly becoming recognised the, as the Dion of climate economics in New Zealand. He spent the last few days working through the government's emissions reduction plan. Matt, thanks for once again joining Taxpayer Talk. Hi, Jordan. Now, <laughs> this feels a little bit like deja vu. The government has released its draft emissions reduction plan. Haven't we been through all this before? Or, like, when does the rubber hit the road? Well, so far this year, we've had a draft and final report from the Climate Change Commission that's covering these issues, and now the government's issued, uh, issued its new plan. Effectively, it's it's almost back-to-back with what the recommendations it got from the commission were. So, yeah, we have been here before. The strat- the basic strategy, the, the key issue here is that the government is pursuing a, an emission strategy that doesn't make sense. It's not clear how the emissions reduction plan uh, cuts emissions. And the reason is because the government just keeps doing this two-part strategy <laughs> On the one hand, it's it's capped emissions with this wonderful system called the Emissions Trading Scheme, got a hard cap from changes the government made to it last year. And what that means with the cap is that overall emissions from the economy, everything, everything except agriculture, is decided by how many emissions units the government decides to issue and nothing else. And then the second part of the government strategy uh, is that it's proposing all of these EV subsidies, fee bait, ute tax, um, standards and regulations that will affect how you and I, really every aspect of our lives one way or another, all of those things aren't going to do anything if you've got a cap that's decided emissions and those other things aren't changing the cap. So the government is just sticking with the strategy um, that's going to not cut emissions any more than the ETS alone will, but it's going to have massive uh, back pocket costs for everybody. And we're talking thousands of dollars per household per year forever. Uh, and the government just hasn't explained what the hell it's doing uh, with its strategy. Okay, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to be slightly cynical, but this does feel like deja vu. And we obviously had, I think it was just over 6,000 of uh, our members and supporters submitted uh, to the Climate Change Commission. In fact, we made up more than a third of all of the submissions um, filed with the commission, they all made the point you're making that you know it's against the the even the UN's recommendations that once you've got cap and trade, that you shouldn't governments shouldn't be tinkering within those emission sectors because all you're doing is unless you're changing the cap, all you're doing is shifting the emissions within the economy rather than um, reducing the overall. And I get that at the beginning, like when this report came out a couple of days ago. Within five minutes of the report being coming out, you know, your Greenpeace, your school strike for climate change, Forest and Bird, all had their media responses. And, I mean, they were clearly written before anyone had even seen the report because they all simply say, government not doing enough, let us down, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a genuine greenie, like, and, and, and let's be frank, there's a, a lot of our members and supporters that are concerned about climate change and see it as the existential threat facing the world. Why aren't they blowing the whistle if what you claim is correct, that actually this emissions plan doesn't do what it says on the tin? I think there's a few parts to it. Um, One is it's just complicated. Uh, It's not easy to see that that's what's going on. 
Another part of it is that, you know, the government here is just doing what governments in most other countries are doing. So the government's policy strategy looks an awful lot like what's going on in Britain or what could happen in the next few years in the United States and so on, certainly what it looks like in Europe. But New Zealand is different because we have this emissions trading scheme that imposes a comprehensive cap over all parts of the economy, pretty much except agriculture, which is a big exception. But if you're not agriculture, basically you're under the ETS cap. And that's not true for any other country in the world. We really do have a special system. And because of we're different in that respect, it has the really crucial effect um, that everything else you do um, that might make sense in Europe or UK or the United States doesn't make sense here. So the government in some sense is following the lead from everybody else. It's just that they've done this really extraordinary good policy uh, that does make us different. But it, it isn't... Um, the political uh, cost-benefit doesn't tip favourably enough to uh, justify not doing EV subsidies and so on. So I think, look, so the sorry, government knows all of mean, this, right? Ministers uh, know this. You mean, when you say political cost-benefit, you mean that that politicians need to be seen to be doing something? There's absolutely uh, a political constituency for being seen to do things, to take action on climate, regardless of whether that actually makes sense or not. And the argument that just walks you through, you know, the argument to get to the realisation that subsidising EVs doesn't cut emissions in our country because of the cap, um, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a surprising idea. It's not an idea that a lot of people are talking about. Um, but if you happen to think that greenhouse gases cause climate change, it's obviously a crucial um, piece of information. So the fact is, you know, there are thousands of officials in Wellington, or more than a thousand officials working in Wellington on climate change right now. They've been working for years. Uh, they know this, right? Or they should know this. You know, this is bread and butter. How, what's the relationship between the emissions trading scheme and every other policy that you do? This should be front and center of their attention. So you have the system that I think that, you know, if you had an independent public service um, that was competent and trying to do the right thing for the country, it would be tabling advice to ministers that says, look, um, you might think this EV subsidy or whatever is cutting emissions. It's not going to. We have to oppose it. That's not happening. So there's a real breakdown in the system. And by the way, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth of costs over the next 30 years through to 2050, right? This is huge. This is the biggest, you know, argument just in terms of the sheer amount of money that's about to be wasted, this is probably bigger than anything, way, way bigger than anything Muldoon ever did. So just let me throw it um, uh, uh, again. If, the, if I go out, so let's say I, I want more electric cars, okay? Like, just let me through. The government subsidising electric cars, how does that not reduce emissions? Okay, so let's say uh, an extra, uh, let's say you import an electric vehicle instead of a petrol or diesel car, right? So um, one less petrol car, one more EV um, means that emissions from transport are going to be less. Um, what does that do under an ETS emissions cap? Well, what it does is it means that um, it frees up emissions units that would otherwise have been purchased and then surrendered back to the government by uh, petrol companies, that's less units that are needed um, to be bought. Now, those units don't disappear. There's still the same number of units in circulation, and the number of units determines total emissions. There's still the same number of units in circulation. Less units are needed for transport. Those units don't disappear. They're going to get bought and surrendered by some other sector. 
uh, and that means um, higher emissions elsewhere in the economy. So for every less tonne of emissions you get from transport because of the EV, uh, it's one more tonne of emissions somewhere else in the economy. We don't know where, but we know it must be true. This neutralising effect of the ETS must be true because total emissions are determined solely by how many emissions units the government uh, issues. That's what the emissions cap means. And if any policy leaves that number um, of units unchanged, if it leaves the cap unchanged, then overall emissions don't change. And all the EV subsidy or all the EV will do is change where emissions come down, but not by how much. Yeah, so, I mean, we've started to push back a bit on on this since you've, you know, since we've got our head around, around this. And it is a little bit of a eureka moment because once you click, you start, you just see everywhere all this sort of, um, I mean, it's like the emperor's got no clothes, isn't it? That, that, that we see, I mean, NZTA or what used to be known as NZTA have been running these full page ads promoting the electric vehicle subsidy and saying that it is the path by electric um, vehicle reduces emissions and it's a pathway to a, a green in New Zealand. Now, we asked, we wrote to NZTA and said, well, hang on a minute. I'm making your point, transport emissions are already covered by the emissions trading scheme. Buying an electric car doesn't reduce overall emissions. Emissions. What do you say? And they came back and said, well, uh, there's a difference between, quote, real world environments, close quote, and the, quote, system level um, emissions, which... Just is totally. I mean, I we've gone back and asked what the heck they mean by that. But what is the best defence that Jacinda Ardern, James Shaw, uh, NZTA, Ministry for the Environment officials, that you say they understand this, but they're sort of hiding. They're under the uh, political pressures where they have to be seen to be taking actions. What like what's the best defence? The best defence that I am aware of is that, that this is what the voters demand, and so they're effectively making a bet that, you know, this is this this is the silliness of the strategy. They're making the bet that um, voters won't notice um, the merits of the actual emissions benefits or lack of them of their strategy. For the next 30 years, uh, of course, they will, especially when, you know, it starts biting, you know, when they're paying thousands of dollars more for their car for no, um, you know, they're making sacrifices for no emissions benefit. Um, I think voters are going to start noticing when people like you and me start pointing out that their sacrifices are for nothing and ministers knew it. Um, We've been talking about this for years. It's actually a pretty basic argument, right? Ultimately, emissions come down because you're issuing fewer units. Um, and that's why they come down. And so policies, you know, like your uh, EV subsidy and so on, if they don't change the units, they don't change emissions. Emissions come down. You know, it's not some theory, right? You can check that cap and trade schemes like the ETS actually work. Um, and cap and trade's been around for decades, and it's been pointed at other um, pollutions like sulfur dioxide and so on. Um, overwhelmingly, the evidence, uh, completely unsurprisingly, is that they do work. I mean, it's just a simple matter of logic. If you, um, if you cap emissions um, with units and then you punish non-compliance, well, guess what? And, you, and then you issue fewer units than, than pollution. Well, guess what? Pollution comes down. It's, yeah. it's, it's really just a question of sticking to your emissions budget uh, and then enforcing compliance. Those are the only two conditions to make the ETS work. Now, the fact that we have an ETS price at $65, you know, double what it was um, barely more than a year ago, that's a market 
credible market signal uh, that the government is expected to stick to its emissions budgets and really enforce that cap. Um, and at $65, that's really going to be biting. So we are going to see the ETS having making a real dent in uh, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions over the next two or three years, because in some parts of the economy, $65 really does uh, bite hard. If you're burning coal or natural gas, 65 bucks hurts. So you are going to see an effect. So I think, you know, the current strategy is going to run out of steam fairly quickly um, once you can see greenhouse gases coming down uh, quite rapidly, as I think they will in response to the $65 ETS. It'll become increasingly difficult for ministers to argue that they've got to be doing all of these other crazy things um, when emissions are coming down right on track and in line with um, the government's net zero targets. So I guess the question is then, and this is something that that we urged on the Climate Change Commission, which it just became clear that they were, I, I mean, they, they they were well and truly um, being um, Rodker, Rod rather, um, clearly just had ideological blinkers on. I think it's it's safe to say, and actually, clearly. I think yep. a lot of people around Wellington now uh, acknowledge that. Um, and one of the things we urge, though, is you need to cost all these measures. We've got a benchmark cost, which is the ETS. It's at sixty-five a ton thereabouts. Mm-hmm. What about all these other policies? That they're recommending, you know, the banning gas connections, the electric car subsidies, the, the getting rid of um, of diesel utes, etc. Uh, are the costs at least measured now that they're with the government versus um, the Climate Change Commission? Not really. Um, here's what I think um, the other big deceit uh, in all of this is. It's that the process this government, pushed by the Climate Change Commission and Rod Carr, is running, is that that analysis comes after the decisions are made. So the Climate Change Commission has sent its advice, both draft and final, without much anal- without any analysis um, of most or any of its recommendations. Uh, and now the government is putting out its emissions reduction plan largely without any analysis of individual recommendations in that document as well. The argument from Carr and from ministers is that, yep, we're going to do that analysis, but at the time the black letter of the legislation is written. In other words, after the cabinet decision, right at the end of the process, after the commitment has been made. Well, look, if you look back at the four years of this government and probably any government um, you look at in history, analysis after the political commitment has been made is worthless. You know, It doesn't matter what the analysis says once a political party in the government of the day has publicly um, attached its name to a particular policy. So we saw with the Zero Carbon Bill two or three years ago, um, once the legislation, once it had gone through cabinet, once the decisions had been made, once the legislation was being drafted, then the cost-benefit analysis turned up, and it had some extraordinary numbers in it: three thousand dollars a ton uh, to get to net zero, just astronomical. You know, you're spending um, twenty or thirty or forty percent of your GDP just on cutting emissions. Obviously, that should have killed the whole idea of net zero based on that analysis. It had no effect whatsoever because it turns up too late. You need the analysis at the start of the process because, by the way. Here's why analysis is so important. 90% of the policy ideas that you want to do aren't going to pass it because you've already got a carbon price that's doing 90% or 95% of the work anyway. So it only leaves um, a small amount of room for other policies to come in and add any more value that you're not already getting through the ETS. So the so decision you're to... saying is, is when you've got a counterfactual of simply reducing the emissions you're putting into the emissions trading scheme, you've got a, a clear market price there and it's very difficult to find the the measures that are visible to the public so that the politician can cut a, cut a ribbon or pass a law uh, that 
that gets anywhere near that price. It'll be it'll be hard for those measures to cut enough emissions to justify their cost if you already um, have a price on carbon right across yeah. the economy. So they, it just it doesn't rule out the possibility, but it really narrows the possibilities. And so and you can't guess them, right? You can't just see them. It takes analysis to find where the opportunities are. So this whole process where the analysis comes at the end um, ultimately means we spend tens or hundreds of billions of dollars quite reliably to not cut emissions. Rod Carr, his officials, ministers, their advisors must all know this. And yet here we are talking about an emissions reduction plan with all of these um, massively interventionist policies without the backing of cost-benefit analysis and with the near certainty that most of it, if not all of it, won't cut a single tonne of emissions. So I think we've got you know, the most serious problem of all. You know, We're at the deep end here. Is it? I mean, you, you used the word before, which um, I want to jump back to, and I'm pretty sure you used the word deceit. Do you think that officials have been dishonest in this report? I think officials know or by now ought to know um, that there's a serious problem with a strategy of combining an emissions cap with other policies under that cap. Um, <laughs> anybody it, worth it, their salt should, the same, should be able to understand that. I mean, and this is the thing that... And by the way, Jordan, I need to add, it's it's certainly not just us saying this. This is a this is the orthodox view right across the economic profession. You know, the idea that uh, an emissions cap neutralizes or mostly neutralizes other policies is widespread in the literature. The IPCC, UN IPCC itself, has acknowledged that this is the effect of cap and trade. It's not just us. Um, and you, you've got an army of officials and ministers who um, just decide not to read that bit of the UN report but rely on everything else, um, you know. It's tricky. Uh, it's not going to work. It's got, the truth will be revealed eventually when we spend all of this money without any palpable well, effect on emissions. Uh, and one more point: most of the policies, many of the policies, perhaps most, um, are absolutely going to hit people on low incomes the hardest. Right? If you're paying five hundred dollars a ton for carbon, um, guess who hits hardest with that? Low income households spend more of their income on carbon intensive goods than the average or high income households. You're hitting people at the bottom end the hardest. You know, subsidies for Tesla Model, brand new Tesla Model Threes. Um, guess who gets the subsidy, and guess who pays for them? Yeah. Deeply regressive. I, I, I want to come back to that because that's something that 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 the initiative has has really promoted this idea of a, a a carbon dividend. But just come back that I mean the first time around we you can kind of get your head round why a group of officials at the Climate Change Commission, you know, the Quango, become absolutely ingrained in this stuff and it becomes sort of environmental religious type policy making. Um, where you know n- nothing gets in the way of, especially not um, centre right lobbyists or or business think tanks um, um, pointing out inconvenient truths. But this is now with central government that this is a whole different team of officials that appear to have been going down the same path. And my question for you, Matt, is having given your role being the um, the interface between Bill English's office and. Uh, Treasury under the John Key government. Where is Treasury in this? Surely they must be pulling their hair out. I think parts of Treasury are. Actually, we get glimpses of pushback from Treasury that raises questions about, you know, how does this policy interact with the ETS, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you do see some of that, uh, and that's just Treasury doing its job, and this absolutely should be uh, bread and butter for Treasury and good on them for doing it, um, but not nearly visible enough, not enough clout to actually stop um, 
all of the policies that they may have had some success at the margins. Um, but I think ultimately, if you're um, possibly anywhere except Treasury, it's just not career enhancing uh, to be an official uh, who's raising the sorts of questions that we're talking about here. The decision's been made that we're going to be doing um, these subsidies and taxes and regulations and other things, even though regardless of whether it cuts emissions or not, uh, if you're the official that keeps raising the sorts of issues that we're talking about, um, you're probably not going to get promoted in the next round. But I, I think the, the fundamental thing that's happening, you know, what's the basic problem here? It's that the emissions reduction system, the, the climate change policy system, has become disconnected from the idea that its goal is to cut emissions. It's just not willing to focus on emissions and let the um, behaviours and technologies that will emerge from that fall out. Instead, they've gone the other direction. They've decided what the answer is, more EVs, less coal, less petrol cars, uh, more solar panels, uh, and they're just tipping the playing field however far as necessary to make those things happen, regardless of the emissions uh, consequences. So you have, you know, the system's well, which, been tipped on its head. Nothing. I'm sorry? Which you say is nothing. <laughs> which is nothing. And the system, you know, it's... There's no shape or discipline or framework in the system if, if it's not paying attention to emissions. If it's not focused on emissions, uh, it's not anchored in anything. They can do literally anything they want because they've abandoned the basic idea of emissions and not replaced it with anything else. And so I think by default, I don't think this is the overt goal, but the effect um, by default is just control for its own sake. Um, you can't look at all the things the government wants to do uh, and say that it has any environmental or um, certainly climate change benefit. It's just control. That's what you're getting. So... Uh, there's just this basic test that should be getting applied to every single emissions policy, which is does this cut emissions? Does it cut emissions competitively compared to all the other alternatives for how we cut emissions? That test just doesn't happen anymore. And um, yeah. Surely at the end of this, there's one question that devastates them then, if that's the, trip, if that's the case, which is how, under this plan, how much will emissions reduce by with and without this plan? emissions will reduce by um, virtually the same amount. And the only exception, really, uh, is in agriculture and only because it's not uh, covered by a carbon well, price. But it's about to be soon. Come back, I, I want to come back to the, um, agriculture and the, rural, and the rural sector. But let's just cover, you mentioned that all these costs will disproportionately hit the poor. How would you, I mean, that's true as well for the ETS, which although it's a trading scheme, operates from the consumer's point of view as a tax. How would you protect those that can least afford higher living and transport costs from the realities of having to pay for carbon? So the ETS um, is the best way, or a carbon price, whether it's for an ETS or a tax, is the best way to cut uh, carbon. You just get more bang per buck uh, by using a price rather than command and control. Almost universally recognised among economists. Uh, strong consensus on that point. Low-income households spend more of their um, limited income on carbon-intensive goods, so a carbon price in any form is going to be um, somewhat regressive, right? That's just the nature of um, spending patterns. You can take the revenue you raise from the sale of emissions units, about $600 million a year at the moment, and you can divide that revenue by $5 million and send every household in the country a cheque based on how many people are in their house, and this is called a carbon dividend. And 
low-income households disproportionately benefit from a carbon dividend because although they spend more a higher share of their incomes on on carbon, um, their carbon footprint overall is smaller uh, on average than middle and high-income households. So a carbon dividend turns the uh, emissions trading scheme from mildly regressive into strongly or very strongly progressive because um, low-income households disproportionately benefit. Overseas studies, haven't seen anything here, but overseas studies estimate that something um, in the order of 80 to 90% of low-decile households um, enjoy a net gain from carbon pricing when you're doing a carbon dividend. Uh, and a carbon dividend in almost any form is, is strongly progressive. It doesn't matter whether you really do it as a flat rate or you, you adjust it for number of children or so on. The, the, in all forms, it's going to make benefit, it progressive. The, the marginal benefit for the extra 100 bucks for a pauper is a lot higher. That's right. So there's two benefits to a dividend. One is that um, it makes carbon pricing overall progressive. That's a good thing. The second thing it does is that it buys you um, support to go harder on emissions pricing. So, you know, without a dividend, voters might um, start uh, turning off the ETS when it reaches, say, $100. With a carbon dividend, they're getting the money back, right? Suddenly voters are willing to go to $300. And that that just means you um, get to cut more emissions. Paying a dividend, giving the money back doesn't mean you stop incentivizing emissions reduction. So a dividend ticks every box. You know, the government said it's worried about greenhouse gases. It wants, um, it's worried about uh, regressive policies. Carbon dividend ticks both of those boxes. And yet one of the only um, new and concrete things in that emissions reduction plan that we saw two days ago is that it rules out a carbon dividend. It expressly says we want to recycle revenues from ETS auctions with climate action or climate policies. Now that rules out a dividend. Um, so, so what again, does that mean going to the going to the it's going to go into a, a fund, and then the government uses that money to, to ease it out, to, more subsidies, to more regulations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Almost certainly, all of it under an ETS cap with no effect on emissions, and certainly and in, um, in groups that lobby for harder, faster. Yeah, all the pork um, barrel, of course. You know, yeah. it's just. You know, it's just this repeated pattern, especially from this government, um, which says we're worried about emissions, but they keep turning down the opportunity to cut them or to protect the poor, the two things that they say they want to do. Just to be devil's advocate, I saw that the government made quite an emphasis of the cash for clunkers regime. I suspect uh, as a partly at least as a response to some of the blowback that they've had of the point that we've been making around subsidies for Tesla owners um, and rich electric cars while, you know, for the uh, people that have to have the long commute for night shifts in South Auckland where public transport isn't, isn't an option, nor is an electric car, you know, pay more. Do you, has the government sort of, are there other things the government can do if, if, not, it's a, if it's not a carbon dividend or, a, you know, a, a transfer as a result of, of money raised from the ETS? Um, to lessen the blow on those that can least afford it? Well, I mean, you know, you can throw enough money um, at anybody to make the pain go away. Uh, really, the question is what's the what's the simplest, most effective, um, best way to do it? And carbon dividend, you know, really is simple and effective and, you know... It, it, Anyone can sign up for it if you're actually worried about emissions or protecting the poor. Um, but there are other ways you can do it. Yep, you can you can uh, you can subsidise. Um, you can have a high emissions affordable vehicle subsidies for people in the bottom two deciles, for example. You know, you, there are lots of ways you can do it. But a dividend really is much more simple and elegant, um, progressive, and uh, enduring um, as a way to to just 
solve the problems that are being created by with a carbon price. So let's talk about finally the rural sector. There, I mean, they've been for us. I mean, it's an area we in Wellington, as you know, we share our floor with um, the feds on um, fed farmers that are in our old offices, and they're obviously quite anti the ETS, whereas we are say we've got a great ETS, it's, it's sector neutral, um, except, of course, agriculture is kept out of it. I saw, coincidentally, there was a report out today uh, from KPMG that's been looking at the um, uh, emission re- readiness for carbon zero across the OECD. Or um, Sorry, they looked at 32 countries, and New Zealand was ranked ninth place. But we were, in particular... New Zealand's agri-food sector is ranked first for decarbonation preparedness for agriculture, land use, and forestry. So that would become, I'm surprised by that, given how much of a hammering farmers in the rural uh, sector get uh, and all these controls coming down the line to, you know, de, I think decarbonize or decal New Zealand. I haven't seen the report, but I mean, there's two thoughts come. Uh, first is that forestry um, uh, is in the ETS, uh, very clearly is getting a very strong signal uh, to plant more trees from a $65 carbon price. So that part of the problem is working and working well. Not everybody likes it and there are possible changes you'd make. But if you're worried about carbon, um, forestry's uh, in exactly the right place to make a huge difference, far, far more than anything else the government's doing. Um, with respect to the rest of agriculture, at the moment, agriculture is outside the ETS, doesn't pay a carbon price. It earns 50% of our exports, but it's also responsible for about half our emissions. So it's a big deal um, what you do with our agriculture sector because it is so significant in, in terms of both costs and benefits. But they rightly argue, what's the point of pricing carbon and taxing them harder when they're already the cleanest in the world in terms of carbon emissions? You know, you're, you're, you're reducing... You're providing an incentive for New Zealand to export those emissions for countries to fill the gap, and actually, you know, in terms of production, but in a less efficient way from the point of view of carbon emissions. Yeah, so this is the danger of the government trying to think, and the Climate Change Commission in particular, thinking about emissions reduction in silos. And that's deadly when you're talking about sectors that trade with the rest of the world where we have the comparative advantage in terms of emissions. Now, our agriculture sector is the most carbon efficient uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and yet you have a Climate Change Commission and a government that's trying to lower uh, emissions from agriculture when arguably... Uh, global emissions will fall if a higher share of dairy production, global dairy production occurs in this country and less occurs elsewhere. The solution is um, to stop thinking in silos, start thinking about uh, emissions reduction in terms of global comparative advantage, as opposed to just trying to stamp out every uh, bit of emissions from every part of the economy regardless. I think the way to do it is um, rather than isolate ag- New Zealand agriculture from carbon pricing, etc., it's to bring them into the system, but allow them to trade uh, with the rest of the world, trade emissions units with the rest of the world to enable the discovery of who has the comparative advantage in terms of emissions reduction. Now, we're going to win from that process as long as it's open and on a level playing field. Um, so I think there is a coherent strategy. So you argue that, that when... I don't know who the major 
uh, when the other major economies price carbon in a in in as credible way as uh, the EU and us and the other leading economies that that price carbon, at that is the point in which you bring in agriculture. Is that your argument? It's to bring in the agriculture now, not necessarily expose them to a sixty-five dollar price. Um, start at five or one. Uh, but have it going up over time, but also allow them to cooperate with other countries through the trading of genuine emissions units. And the idea is that dairy farmers or people on their behalf can import emissions units from other countries, provided they're from credible regimes, um, produce their um, produce the dairy here, and then surrender those units to the government um, and make a profit on the difference because we are more carbon efficient than the country the units came from. Um, that's... Oh, that trading process okay. enables discovery of who's the best place to produce the next um, kilo of milk solids. Now, we're going to win in that process as long as, as it's a genuinely level playing field. Not an easy system to set up, but that's the principle. And actually, I think James Shaw gets that. He has talked about a um, global carbon price. He has talked about that as the logical endpoint. The problem is that he's getting advice from a climate change commission that wants to stamp out agriculture emissions, um, regardless of whether we are or are not um, hold the competitive advantage uh, in, in um, emissions in dairy. Well, we probably do. In fact, we certainly do. Uh, yeah, that was that was one of our complaints last. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, but last time round, um, that the climate change commission had taken a sort of very isolationist New Zealand gross emissions approach rather than net emissions, i.e., that you know the planting trees or paying uh, paying countries to plant overseas, which are, some European countries are doing, are approaching poorer countries and say, we can emit more um, on the basis that you planting more trees reduces overall ca um, uh, carbon in the planet. Has Now that it's with the government rather than uh, the uh, Climate Change Commission, have we seen the sort of more internationalisation or is it still very much a silo approach? It's very much silo. We're seeing the elected government is back to back with um, the advice it's getting from the Climate Change Commission. So and I think what look, I think what's going on is the government and the Climate Change Commission have just decided to adopt the progressive liberal Joe Biden agenda. Um, you know, agriculture bad, petrol and diesel bad, solar and wind good. You know, just the, the checkbox of um, yep. uh, and then just backfill, you know, just tipping the policy playing field as far as necessary to make those things happen, regardless of whether it's any good for emissions or not. Well, very clearly, that's, contr uh, that's contrary to a goal of getting to net zero emissions because it means, um, firstly, we're raising global emissions, arguably, certainly with respect to agriculture, probably in lots of places because we're just ignoring um, underlying fundamentals of who's best place to cut emissions and who's not. Um, and, and guess what? You know, the liberal left makes bad um guesses about which technologies work. You know, solar panels, batteries, wind um, absolutely have their place. They are wonderful technologies. But if you build, if you just keep building them beyond the point of um, uh, limited returns, you know, you're just pouring more concrete and steel for no emissions benefits. Do you think these people, these these people uh, demonstrate no interest in whether that's true, no interest in building the systems to prevent that sort of thing. Um, they've just got the simple more is better of whichever te technologies um, they've decided uh, should win and, and whichever technology should lose. Actually, if you're trying to cut emissions, you take an almost totally different approach. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is just this persistent reluctance um, to have their ideas tested, um, to put in 
place the systems to actually make good decisions that cut emissions at least cost. You know, net zero shouldn't be difficult if we're prepared. In fact, it's not difficult. Um, you can uh, cooperate with other countries. You can uh, remove vast amounts of emissions from uh, the atmosphere just by going where the going's good, if you're just prepared to do what works. And to get to where we are, the government and the Climate Change Commission and other officials have had to rule out, you know, every other much more productive avenue um, to reduce or remove emissions, uh, leaving all we've got, which is command and control, massive interventions, thousands of more dollars to drive a car, and all for no emissions benefits. So it's, you know, I think it's fair to say that most of what's going on with the government and with officials now has nothing to do with climate change or emissions reduction. This is emissions reduction in name only. What can we do? Where to from here? Look, I think we're going to see clear evidence that the emissions trading scheme is working. You know, one of the nice things, you know, it's surprising the okay. fact that you can go to 65 bucks. Say it was them. <laughs> What's that? The, the politicians will say it was them. You know, thank God we didn't listen to the New Zealand Initiative or the Taxpayers Union. We wouldn't have had us done this, <laughs> you know, ban uh, utes. Well, actually, we, it will be easy to rule that out because the government does actually tell you how many tonnes of emissions it thinks um, its various policies um, are going to cut. So, um, you know, their policies on their own numbers, their policies will cut, say, 50,000 tonnes a year, um, whereas um, emissions come down by 2 million. So that leaves um, uh, not much, you know, in other words, it'll be clear where the emissions have come down from. Um, but what you're going to find over time is that emissions come down exactly in line with the emissions trading scheme cap. And as the um, this pile of units that's outstanding uh, is run down, emissions will just come down back for back um, with those uh, with the emissions cap. So um, it'll be hard for the government to say uh, it's 50,000 um, tonnes from tr all its transport nonsense is making any difference when emissions are coming down uh, in the millions of tonnes um, a year over the next few years. The... the the government's running another cons consultation process on this plan. Is it worth is it worth our supporters engaging with it and doing what we did last time, which is, I mean, we actually did a better job than any of the environmental groups that should be making these arguments. Um, but instead, I think take the easy um, that the easy hits of you know congratulations we banned you know farmers being able to use tractors. Um, I exaggerate, but <laughs> but the I mean that, that that's next. Or uh, sorry, they have at least saying you know we've we've culled the cows, but not enough of them. Um, rather than sort of taking as you say, like putting the effort in to explain to their people the way the ETS works and why you know that that, that it's important that we stay the course. Um, is it worth going through that process again, or do you think that we should be talking straight to the MPs? and forcing them to confront this issue head on. I'll do both. Look, I think a really valuable message at this point would be to the demand that the government show how its emissions reduction plan actually cuts emissions. You know, show us, give us a document that just walks us through the maths of how you cut emissions under an emissions cap. Uh, now that you're looking at spending tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, actually demonstrate to us how your plan works because we don't know and it's not obvious. Uh, I think that is the challenge the government um, has to answer, you know, has to answer. It's ridiculous that we've got to the point we have without a clear understanding of how the, the strategy works. Give us 20 pages um, I, I in the next six months that walks write, through the maths. I didn't see me can write literally hundreds and thousands of pages as part of this process and not get to that. I'm That's just struck that you've got 
you know, more than a thousand officials who know this, um, who just aren't worried about that. You know, they know this, they should know it. They've been told it for years. I understand there is a document with an MB, I think, um, that's going around that actually tries to answer the question of the so-called waterbed effect, this neutralizing effect of an ETS cap. Haven't seen it yet. We've put it in an OAA. That'll be interesting. Officials are aware of this, um, but the government hasn't been held to account for the basic fact that its plan doesn't cut emissions. Uh, costs a lot, doesn't cut emissions. So that's the challenge. I'd love to see your members put to the government and demand an answer and, you know, if possible, march in the streets uh, until you get one. Matt Burgess, you're the canary in the coal mine on this issue. Uh, thanks once again for joining Taxpayer Talk. Thank you.